0: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke.
1: The bigger issue here is not trying to figure out who's good and who's bad, and is this God's judgment or not. The real issue is, where do you stand yourself before the Lord? Because there's going to be a day of accounting for all of us. We have to be ready as individuals. Stop passing judgment on other people and trying to make these grandiose decisions about what God must be up to with disasters and diseases, and start looking at your own heart and begin to recognize Are you going to be right with God on the Day of Judgment when it comes to you? It's
0: much easier to point out how other people are messing up than it is to look at the mistakes that you've made. The truth is that people don't like to own up to the ways they've failed, at least not in front of others. But like Pastor Gary shares in his edition of Cornerstone Connection, this is something that you need to do. Rather than focusing on what others have done wrong, you need to think about your own life. He encourages you to consider where you stand with the Lord and if your heart is right with Him. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 13 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: Luke chapter 13, if you have your Bibles uh, open there, it says in verse one, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. "'Were those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, "'do you think they were more guilty "'than all the others living in Jerusalem? "'I tell you no, but unless you repent, "'you too will all perish.'" Uh, Let me pause there. Uh, The Gospel of Luke, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, has a lot of stories and recordings about the ministry of Jesus that the other Gospels do not. Matthew, Mark, and John don't record some of the things that Luke does. A lot of what you have between Luke 10 and Luke 19 are very unique to the Gospel of Luke. Not all of it. But much of Luke 10 to Luke 19 is very unique to the Gospel of Luke. And this is one of them. He talks here about two unfortunate incidences that happened. Uh, We have no other record of these incidences outside of this little story here. Uh, But there are two incidences that happened. One is that apparently Pilate, Pontius Pilate, had uh, mixed the blood of some Jewish worshipers with their sacrifices. So he had slaughtered some Jewish worshipers. We don't know anything about this story. If Jesus had had like a newspaper in his day, this would have been part of the headlines. But there was a story about when Pilate executed, murdered, had killed some Jews who were worshiping and and their sacrifices that they were offering in the temple got mixed with their own blood. They come to Jesus and they make mention of this. And then Jesus also adds about another incident there about this tower in Siloam that fell on some people and killed them. And basically, the reason why Jesus is being asked about the first story and then Jesus adds the second story is because there was this connection in the thoughts and minds of people in the day that bad things happen to bad people. And they are wanting to know, you know, why did this, you know, what do you make of this? And the reason we know that their angle is that this must have been God's judgment against people who were bad is because both times in in each of these stories, Jesus says, do you think they were worse sinners than other people? And each time he adds, no. So that's the angle that they're coming at. They're like, hey, what about this deal with Pilate when he killed these worshipers and mixed their blood with the sacrifices? Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than other people? He says, I tell you, no. And then he adds this incident, again, we know nothing else about when some tower in Siloam fell and killed some other people. And he said, do you think those people who died when the tower fell, do you think that they were worse sinners than other people? He says, I tell you, no. He says, but unless you all repent, you likewise will perish. Now, first, let's get some theology out of the way, because this is important to the story. Unfortunately, there are some people today who still connect tragedy with the judgment of God. We need to be very, very careful with this kind of a thing. You know, I remember when people said that when a 9-11 happened in 2001, that it was God's judgment against America. I remember when the tsunami hit Indonesia in 2004, and Indonesia is almost entirely a Muslim country. I remember hearing people say it was God's judgment against Muslims. I've heard people over the years refer to AIDS as God's judgment against homosexuals. We better be very, very careful about this kind of thing. Now, let's make it clear. Are there consequences to sinful behavior? Yes. And when you talk about things like sexually transmitted diseases, when you are sexually promiscuous, you open up yourself to more than two dozen sexually transmitted diseases. That's what the National Institute of Health says that there are today. Okay. So if you do violate the law of God, are there consequences to that? Yes. There can be, surely. But you can't connect every disease... And every disaster to the judgment of God will there be a judgment day capital J capital D yes and will there be a day when nations are judged yes but this kind of connection to all kinds of natural disasters and diseases and unfortunate things it must be God's judgment against people that's very dangerous kind of theology There are consequences to sin. There will be a day of judgment. But we have to recognize that we live in a world where Satan has some free reign. It's limited, but he has otherwise free reign. That's why the Bible calls him the prince of the air. He is the prince of the darkness. This world is under the power of Satan. And as a result of the human fall because of our sin against God, we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, there are diseases. And in a fallen world, there are disasters. There are all kinds of things that happen. But you can't pin all those kinds of things on, well, this is just simply God's judgment against people. As if to say that, you know, if a disease strikes you or if a disaster strikes you, it must be God's judgment against you. That kind of theology is messed up. And Jesus is addressing it here. He's saying, listen, if you think that those people who were killed by Pilate was God's judgment in disguise because they were bad people, I tell you no. And if you think that the Tower of Siloam fell on people and that they deserved it somehow because it was God's judgment, I tell you no. And then what Jesus does is he takes the picture of the discussion and he turns it to make it personal. He says, but I tell you, unless each of you repent, you'll all likewise perish. In other words, the bigger issue here is not trying to figure out who's good and who's bad and is this God's judgment or not. The real issue is where do you stand yourself before the Lord? Because there's going to be a day of accounting for all of us. We have to be ready as individuals. Stop passing judgment on other people and trying to make these grandiose, you know, decisions about what God must be up to with disasters and diseases. And start looking at your own heart and begin to recognize, are you going to be right with God on the day of judgment when it comes to you? Because he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Did these people perish? Yes, yes. Will we all perish at some point? We're all going to basically die of the last thing you were sick of. (laughs) Up to this point, I have been healed of every single thing I've ever been sick of. Right? So have you. There's going to be a day when the last thing that you're not healed of takes you. Or some unfortunate situation, so what then? So the idea is... We're all going to end up having to deal with the reality of death unless the Lord comes and takes us all home, which would be fine with me. And so the real question is, are you ready? Are you ready? And that's what he's addressing here. And then he tells him this parable here. And this is going to be a beautiful parable to illustrate something about God and his character. Verse 6. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So very short little parable here. And we can learn a couple lessons from the fig tree. And first of all, just to give us the right perspective, the owner of the vineyard is God in this story. You know, he's putting himself in the story. God is the owner of the vineyard and the fig tree represents us. And what it teaches us is, you know, how God relates to us. And there's some important characteristics about God that Jesus shares with us here. And the first thing he basically tells us is that, number one, God is patient because he talks about how he looked for fruit for three years. He inspected this, this fig tree and he kept looking for fruit. And he kept, you know, waiting and and patiently hoping that it would bear fruit. And every year he comes around looking for fruit and there isn't any fruit for three years. And so the guy who's kind of the caretaker of the property says to the owner of the vineyard, you know, we might as well just cut down this fig tree because it's not bearing any fruit. And the owner says, no, no, wait a minute. Before you cut it down, one more year, one more year. I want you to dig around it and I want you to fertilize it. And notice what that communicates. God is a loving God. It tells us that he's patient with us. He wants none to perish. This idea of, wait a minute, give another year, cultivate it, put some, you know, fertilizer around it, maybe it'll become fruitful, is an expression of God's love towards us because he's patient for us. He, He wants us, you know, to be saved. I remember years ago at our house, I planted a dogwood tree out front, and every time I planted it, It would die in the next couple months. And then I plant another one, and it would die. Went through three dogwood trees. Finally, I had somebody say to me, this is what you need to do. The tree keeps dying. What you need to do is you need to startle the dogwood tree. Startle the dogwood tree? Yeah, what you need to do is you need to roll up some newspaper, get a big wad of newspaper, roll it up, and go out there and start beating the tree. (laughs) I said... Say again? That's it. I know it sounds stupid. You go out there with a big wad of newspaper. You go out and you beat the tree. I said, I am not going out in my neighborhood and beat bad dogwood. Bad, bad. Uh, So I waited at night. uh, and, And let me tell you something. I beat that tree silly. And it lived. I don't know what to make of it. Anyway, I shared that with you at no extra cost. But it reminds me when I read this story. It worked. I beat that tree... And now it's blooming and thriving. It's a beautiful tree. Anyhow, God is patient here. Aren't you glad he doesn't treat us that way? (laughs) You know, cultivate it gently, fertilize it. That's what the Lord is is doing with us because he's loving it. But then the third thing, though, and this is the sad reality, though, is that he's just. Because eventually, he says there in verse 8, Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. There is a day of reckoning. That God is just, and it's not like there's an endless amount of time with God. He's patient, he's long-suffering, he wants none to perish, but there is a day of reckoning, and so there is a day of judgment, and so he's just as well as patient and loving. Well, verse 10 says, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bounder? And when he had said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he was doing. So we have here uh, an interesting scene of a dear woman who for 18 years has been in this crippled condition. The Bible says she's bent over, she can't straighten up. So she, I mean, picture someone just, you know, completely bent over at the waist. And uh, it tells us here, and this is interesting language, it says that she had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. They have a King James Bible it says a spirit of infirmity. Now the question becomes then, is she possessed? Is that how, you know, a demon is affecting her in this way? Because it speaks here about a spirit It talks in King James about a spirit of infirmity. Jesus even mentions Satan is involved in this down in verse 16. But we have to be careful here because it's not really an indication to us that she's possessed, as in the fact that some demon has come inside of her and is controlling her from the inside. Now, some, you know, pastors, teachers, Bible professors, whatever, they will try to convince you that this is a scene here where a Christian, because she's a daughter of Abraham, a believer, I don't know that she's actually a believer, she's obviously a devout Jewish follower here, I don't know that she's a believer in Jesus, doesn't specifically say this, calls her a daughter of Abraham, but some will make the argument that this is an example of how a Christian can, in fact, be demon-possessed. But please note with me, there is no reference here that anything was ever cast out of her. In fact, the word that Jesus uses here is healing, healing, healing. Verse 14, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. This is a healing here. It's interesting also that it says that in verse 13, Jesus put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up. Never once in the four Gospels, when Jesus delivered anyone from a demon, did he ever lay hands on them. For a very good reason, because demons can transfer. So never should you lay hands on someone that you suspect to be demon-possessed. You can pray over them. You can ask in the name of Jesus for God to deliver them. And Jesus always spoke the word and demons would be delivered from people who were demon-possessed. But he would never, ever lay hands on them. There's not a single record of Jesus ever laying hands on a demon-possessed person. He spoke the word and they were delivered. That's not the same here. He lays his hands on this dear woman. He heals her. There's nothing that is cast out. There's no conversation. Remember the demoniac at Gadara where Jesus converses with the demon that is possessing this guy. And he casts them out. They talk to him. There's none of that here. Okay. Now, having said that, it is clear, however, that the work of Satan is behind her physical ailment. Again, we can't make arguments and draw out these extrapolated theological ideas where, okay, well, here's a case where an illness is related to something demonic. Does that mean that all illnesses is related to something demonic? No, that's not what it means. Some of the things in the Bible we read are not to be interpreted as patterns They can be singular events that are isolated situations. This is one of them. This woman here, her physical condition was related to some kind of spiritual issue where Satan, though he didn't possess her or demons possess her, there was still something oppressive where he, Satan, had done something to affect this woman physically such that she's hunched over, bent at the waist, and she is in need of healing. And that's what Jesus does with her. He brings healing to her body. And he uh, looses her so that she can be physically well here. Now, I don't even know that she's done anything to invite this. This is perhaps an attack much the same way that Job was attacked. Did Job suffer physically? For those of you who know the story of Job, did Job suffer physically though he was not possessed by Satan? Yes? Yes. Job suffered physically. And really it's for our benefit so we can have the book of Job to realize what happens in the heavenly realms that are unseen to our eyes. But God gave Satan limited permission to afflict Job so that Job would pass this test and be an example of righteousness in the midst of adversity and hardship to serve as a good example for us to persevere. But we know, because we had the book of Job, to realize that what was happening was God was allowing Satan to have some limited freedom there with Job, and part of what Satan did was afflict Job physically. And that's a similar thing happening here. This woman's not possessed by a demon, but she's certainly been physically afflicted by one, or Satan himself. Now, the issue then is, the ruler here becomes indignant, the ruler of the synagogue, He's like, you know, this is the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be working on Sabbath. And they had all these strict rules. And we talked on and on about all these strict Sabbath rules. So I'm not going to belabor it again. Uh, but Jesus basically responds. And he calls them hypocrites. Hypokrites. Two Greek words. Hupo meaning under. Krites meaning to judge. A hypocrite is someone who underjudges himself or herself and overjudges everybody else. Can't see your own, your own sinfulness all oh, you're busy looking at is everybody else's sinfulness. Uh, and so Jesus says, calls them, you hypocrites. And he says, you know, listen, if you have an ox that needs a drink of water, you untie the ox from the stable and you take the ox to drink some water, right? On the Sabbath? He says, so, listen, if you're being that generous to an animal, should you not be more generous to a person? And so he's challenging them. Look, this Satan has kept this woman bound for 18 year, long years. What, what a wonderful thing that on the Sabbath she should be set free, she should be loosed. And it's an interesting play on words here because the same word that Jesus uses in verse uh, 15 where he says, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox? Or donkey. The word untie there also in King James is loose. Don't you loose your your ox or your donkey? It is the same word that he uses for the woman in verse 16 when he says that Satan has kept her bound for 18 long years. Shouldn't she be set free? Same Greek word as untie the ox or the donkey. He says, you know how to loosen, how to set free an ox or a donkey. Isn't it much more important that you should want a woman here set free or loosened from her affliction? And when he says this, it basically shamed all the people who were opposed to him. And everybody else who loved Jesus was like, this is fresh, this is wonderful. And so uh, they were delighted with all of his wonderful things that he was doing. Verse 18. And then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree. Circle that word, tree. And the birds, circle that word, of the air perched in its branches, Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast, circle that word, that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now I will tell you that a long time ago, the general interpretation of this was a good thing that Jesus was saying, hey, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You plant it and it, and just the growth and the expand it becomes like a tree. And it's like the kingdom of God is growing and expanding, and it's a wonderful thing. And birds come and perch in its branches. And in some circles, this is taught as a good thing. This is not a good thing. And how do we know he means it not to be a good thing? For a few reasons. Number one, I had you circle the word tree. A mustard seed never grows into a tree. At most, it grows into a bush, You would never see or say, there's a mustard tree. There's no such thing. You would say there's a mustard bush, there's a mustard plant, but you'd never say there was a mustard tree. So one of the things that Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God is going to grow into this monstrosity, okay? that is somewhat of an anomaly that it was not intended to become. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not like the kingdom of God is to be limited. It is to be expanding around the world. But he's talking specifically about how it's going to take on a form and a shape that God didn't intend it to take in some regards. That's why he adds here about the birds and yeast. Now, the yeast thing is easier to interpret because nowhere in Scripture is yeast used, at least in parables, as a good thing. In fact, uh, I think it's just... Back in chapter 12, yeah, back in chapter 12 in verse uh, 1, it says, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Okay, so you can go back to chapter 13. I only point that out because he uses the word yeast in a bad way. Yeast is a bad thing. Birds... In Scripture except for any reference to a dove is also generally a bad thing with evil intent Jesus says the kingdom of God is going to become this overgrown monstrosity that is going to be unusual in some way and within it perched in its branches you're gonna have birds that aren't a part of it they're just gonna pollute it and yeast which is also seen as something evil, that is the kingdom of God in a bad sense.
0: We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection, and that we were able to dig into the Gospel of Luke together. Did you know you could download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you anywhere you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can also learn about the church behind this ministry. We'd love to meet you at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We're meeting weekly in person and online. So please, join us for worship and Bible study. You can find all the information you need to connect and get service times at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We pray you've been blessed by this teaching today on the life of Jesus. Know that we're praying for you too. Is there anything specific we could lift up to the Lord? let us know by emailing prayer at cornerstonechapel.net That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net That's all we have time for today but join us next time to continue studying Luke right here on Cornerstone Connection.